All right, our sermon text for this morning comes from Mark chapter 1, verse 1 through 8. And we will read those verses right away, then we'll talk about them. So we start at the beginning. Mark writes, The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me, after me, comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Dear Lord, you sent your messenger, John the Baptist, to prepare the way for your one and only son. Use your word now to prepare our hearts to celebrate the great things you have done for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, when you are giving somebody directions, it can be helpful to point out a few landmarks along the way so that they can know when they're getting really close, so that they can know when they're almost there. Uh, in fact, I do this all the time when I'm giving people directions to church. I might say something like, well, our church is located right across from Oakland Cemetery in Grant Park. Or maybe I would say, our church is located you know, right next to Mezcalitos and sort of underneath Tin Lizzie's. Uh, or maybe I would say, if you turn off Memorial Drive at the tattoo parlor, then it's going to be visible right away on your left. But whatever it is, pointing out landmarks like this can be a great way to help somebody make that final turn into their destination. So God did essentially the exact same thing in the Old Testament. As he directed his people to the coming Savior, he pointed out some key landmarks along the way. And one of those landmarks was a very special prophet, a voice in the wilderness, a prophet whose message would turn people back to God. And when that special prophet arrived, then God's people would know that, that they were almost there. The Savior was almost here. Uh, so here is how God said it through the prophet Isaiah. I will send my messenger ahead of you. He's going to prepare your way. And there will be the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. So this was the prophecy. This was like the final turn before you got to the Savior. And this prophecy was fulfilled in a person that we know as John the Baptist. Now, let's talk about John the Baptist for a few minutes this morning. John the Baptist was an interesting guy, I think, to say the least, uh, because he lived in the wilderness, and he wore camel skin clothing with a leather belt around his waist, and he lived on a diet, it says, of locusts and wild honey. And yet Mark tells us that he was an incredibly popular preacher. In fact, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out into the wilderness where he was to hear him preach. So why was John the Baptist so popular? 
it was not just because people were intrigued by his unusual lifestyle. It was much more than that. It was much bigger than that. Through the, the type of life that he lived and his clothes and everything else, John was doing something very intentional. With his diet, with his clothing, he was imitating the lifestyle of a different prophet, a very famous Old Testament prophet named Elijah. Do you remember Elijah? So Elijah was one of the greatest prophets in Israel's history, uh, but he lived at a terrible time. He lived at a time when evil King Ahab and evil Queen Jezebel had literally from the palace, they had turned the people of Israel away from the Lord and they had led them after this false god named Baal. And it was so extreme. And the Bible tells us Ahab was the worst, like the worst king ever to walk the face of the earth, the worst king of Israel there ever was. But it was so extreme that Ahab and especially his wife Jezebel had killed off the Lord's prophets one by one until the last one left was Elijah. And the only way Elijah survived was he ran off into the wilderness, found some camel skin to wear when his clothes wore out, ate locusts and random things he could find to live off the land, and God's prophet was gone. And faith in Israel, it seemed like it was gone. But then came this epic day in the Old Testament, one of the great stories of God's people, and that was the day that Elijah came back. Everyone had maybe forgotten about God's, promise, God's prophet. But all of a sudden he came back and he set up a showdown, a God versus God showdown. This is going to be a showdown on Mount Carmel in front of all the people. And it is going to be the true God versus this false God, Baal. So over on this side, you had the many different prophets of Baal, uh, you know, Jezebel and Ahab's people. And they set up this altar and they prayed all day long for their God to send down fire and prove that he was real. And of course he didn't because there's no such God as Baal. And then over on the other side was Elijah, the only one left, the only true voice left. And he prayed to the God of Israel, show these people that you're real, show your power. And fire came pouring down from heaven and consumed his offering. And all the people of Israel went physically rushing over to surround Elijah, over to his side. And they started chanting, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And it was just this incredible moment where the faith of the nation was restored and reset and, and saved. Otherwise, it would have been totally lost centuries before the Savior even came. So because of events like these, Elijah is widely known as maybe the biggest and most famous great prophet from Israel's history. And so, as God is directing people towards the coming Savior, that final landmark that's going to be there, that final turn right before the Savior comes, is that God says he is going to send an Elijah 2.0, an Elijah-type prophet with an Elijah-type message. And God spoke about this a lot. It wasn't just in our text we read from Isaiah. Uh, God said in Malachi chapter 3, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And God said in Isaiah 45, there's going to be the voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And then in Malachi chapter 4, it actually uses the name Elijah. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So when you have John the Baptist running around in the wilderness, wearing a camel's skin, eating locusts, and all these people are coming out to hear his sermons, they're not just intrigued by his weird behavior. They are recognizing, or many of them are, 
that this is Elijah version 2.0. This was the final sign that God had promised before the coming of the Savior. But not everybody was quite so excited about John the Baptist. So as we get to Jesus' life, as we get to John the Baptist's life, we look through the different gospel writers, and they all give us you know, different pieces of information showing us the whole story. And, and Matthew records for us very clearly two different reactions to John the Baptist's ministry. So Matthew tells us, on the one hand, here is this you know, crazy-looking wilderness preacher guy. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, and confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. This is one reaction. Matthew also tells us, on the other hand, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, and these would have been like the religious leaders of the time, when he saw them coming, John the Baptist said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, out of these stones, God could raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And we're just like, whoa, John the Baptist. So what, what is this difference, and what is this reaction? Why uh, does John the Baptist have such a big problem with the religious leaders? the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Well, the answer is really John the Baptist was treating them the same way that Elijah, the original Elijah, had treated evil King Ahab and evil Queen Jezebel. He was calling them out for their corruption and for their idolatry and for leading people away from God. And everything I just said in that sentence would have tremendously offended the Pharisees and Sadducees. They would have been so offended by this comparison. Would have said, what are you talking about? Back in the days of Elijah, I mean Ahab and Jezebel, they were leading God's people to worship a statue, an idol, Baal. We, the Pharisees and Sadducees, we are leading people back to the Lord. This is what they thought. But what had actually happened over the last several hundred years of history is that these leaders of God's people had lost their way. And not only were they now further and further away from God, but they were dragging other people down with them. So here was the situation, like here is how this all happened. Last week, if you are here last week, we talked about Jesus' genealogy. And we talked about family trees and genealogies and you know, how important it was that God had promised the Savior would come through the family line of Abraham. And then, as Abraham's family grew larger and larger, God had given his people in the time of Moses some special laws. He had given them a law code that set them apart from the nations around them. So it was intended, coming from God, to be very clear, a very clear, straight path to the Savior. Right? It's coming from this specific family that you're a part of. You've got these laws so you can remember that you're a part of it. The road to the Savior should have been very straightforward. But what the Pharisees and Sadducees and religious leaders had done is they had blocked up that road with all kinds of obstacles. They had turned God's promise about the family line into a contest where whoever can trace their family line most directly to Abraham is going to be holier than everybody else. And they had turned God's laws that were there to set his people apart into a contest 
of whoever does the best job following these laws is going to be the holiest and closest to God. In fact, they didn't think God's laws were hard enough, so the Pharisees specifically added several hundred more laws of their own. And so by the time that you reached Jesus' day, and it's hard to envision this because it's just a totally different culture and place and time, but in Jesus' day, the common person would look at these ultra-religious Pharisees and Sadducees and leaders walking around doing all their special things and following every nitty-gritty law, and the average person would say, those are the ones who are close to God. A regular person like me, there's no way I have a chance. And so this is why Jesus said in his own preaching, quotes like this one, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. You see, so the religious leaders had made it seem so hard to get close to God. There's so many obstacles along that road. Try as hard as you can by all means, but as a regular person, you're probably never going to get there. But then, John the Baptist arrived with his teaching of a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And how incredibly different and refreshing it must have been for the everyday person to realize they didn't have to be holy they didn't have to win the perfection contest. They didn't have to do all of this stuff. They didn't have to do anything because God had sent them a Savior who was going to live a perfect life in their place and die to atone for all of their sin. They had a clear, straightforward path to God, and best of all, it was completely free. So, like, this pure gospel message must have just been so refreshing to the regular common people in Israel. And yet at the same time, this pure gospel message was really offensive to the Pharisees and Sadducees because they couldn't stand to hear John now and Jesus later telling them that all of their holiness competitions had been a complete waste of time and that they were actually no better than anybody else. So what have we got? We've got the, the guy in the camel skin with the leather belt standing by the river. People are coming out to him. We've got one prophet from God We've got this one last checkpoint, right, before the Savior is here, and yet we've got two very different reactions to him. Now, what about us? What is our reaction to the message of John the Baptist as we hear it one more time this Advent season? Well, on the one hand, we say, what do you mean, what is our reaction we're in church, like we lit the Advent wreath. We're hearing God's word. Like we're, we're here for the right reasons. We're doing the right things. We're not distracted by the commercialism frenzy that's out there and all the distractions. And we know the real reason for the season, unlike some of those people out there. And yet by that very train of thought, we're betraying our inner Pharisee, our inner Sadducee, that if our sinful heart manages to turn Christmas into a holiness contest, where we look down on everybody out there in the secular world who has failed to keep Christ in Christmas. I mean, if that's what this is about, is who gets Christmas better, then we've missed the whole point of the holiday after all, and we're doing Christmas wrong. And so we need us, and we talked about this in Bible study today, we need John the Baptist to remind us that the true attitude we all need to be bringing into Christmas is the attitude of 
repentance. So, Bible study folks, I'm going to put you on the spot. Repent, what does that word mean? It means turn. Yeah. It's an old word that means turn. Turn. And the way that John the Baptist is using it, he is saying, you know, repent. It's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So he is telling people, turn away from the pride and the works righteousness that is being promoted by your religious leaders, where your whole spiritual life is a holiness contest. Turn away from that. He's also saying, turn away from the despair and the inadequacy and the guilt that you feel as a regular person thinking that, that you're never going to be good enough. Turn away from those things and instead turn towards the completely full and free forgiveness that is going to be provided by your Savior. And today, John tells us the very same thing. He reminds us that the reason God came to this world in human flesh was not to reward us for being better or holier or more religious than other people. No, the reason God came to this world in human flesh was to rescue each one of us individually from the clutches of our own sin. So some of you have been uh, at our church, I'm just looking around, some of you have been at our church longer than others, and we've worshipped in different places, we've had different kinds of years, um, but maybe you've noticed by now that every Advent season, as we build up towards Christmas, there always tends to be a Sunday where we talk about the guy with the camel skin and the leather belt and the locust lunch, right? We always talk about John the Baptist, and there's a reason for that. It is because every single year, so badly, we just need to hear his message again. Christmas is a season where we get so stressed and so distracted and we get worked up into such a frenzy about all these different things that are going on in our family and in our society and in our social calendar and in our budget. And we have so many different things we're thinking about that we just need John the Baptist to sit us down and remind us Christmas is not about any of these different things that are going on out there. Christmas is about something that is right here. It is about God looking ahead, knowing all the sins and wrong things that I would do, and still committing that he was going to enter this world to die on a cross to rescue me. Christmas is about something that is right here. It is about God taking his own child and saying, I will give my child away so that you, Pastor Lucas, can be my child and can be in heaven with me forever. And it's the same for each one of you. It's a, it's a small thing, but it's a big thing. It's clear and it is simple. And so this is the present that is lying there in the manger for you and for me at Christmas time. And it is something so much better and richer and deeper than any of the things that are going on in the world out there. At Christmas, it's right here. At Christmas, God specifically reaches for you and he says, here is forgiveness. Here is a clear path straight to me. Here is eternal life. Here is a status as my child. And this is yours. And it is free right now. And when we view Christmas through that very personal lens, that lens of repentance and forgiveness, then Christmas becomes something really, really special. What it becomes is it becomes something that doesn't change. That's important because everything else changes. And no matter what your home decorations look like this year, no matter what your travel schedule looks like this year, no matter what 
chaos has been wrought financially upon your budget this year. No matter if there's an empty seat at your Christmas table this year. No matter if there's an empty spot in your heart at Christmas this year. This doesn't change. Nobody can take this away from you. Because it is right here and it is personal and it is for you. This is God. This is God's own son entering the world in human flesh for you. To make sure he could get you. To make sure he could save you. To make sure you could be his child. Not only now, but for all eternity. Christmas is coming soon. I mean, now we're in December, right? And uh, even before Jesus came, God sent his word again and again to let people know that Savior was coming soon. And today we rejoice that God sent that final signpost, that final landmark, John the Baptist, so that we couldn't possibly miss it. May God bless us now this Christmas season as we look a few weeks ahead. May God bless us with clarity and with focus to see what Christmas is. It is my Savior, it is my eternal salvation, and it is right here for me. Amen.